I'm going to be doing something I don't normally do, and that's talking on a song, talking about a song, I should say. And the song that we're going to be looking at is one that is a favorite with both young and old. And that song is entitled, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy Faithfulness. We sang it this morning, tremendous words, tremendous theology. And living in a world that's filled with unfaithfulness, broken promises, broken relationships, lies and deceptions on every hand, that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, brings such assurance and hope to our souls. It's like having the sun come out after day upon day of bitter gray and darkness, isn't it? Just marvelous song, marvelous words. As you know, that great hymn of the faith has a context. Thomas Chisholm was the one who wrote the words to it. And they took him, or he took them, I should say, from Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. There it says, um, well, in fact, we're going to look even more, we're going to read the whole context, verses 19 through 26. So Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 26. Jeremiah penned these words, he said to the Lord, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations, as I mentioned, was written by the prophet Jeremiah. God had called him to be his voice to Judah and Jerusalem, confronting the people with their sin and their rebellion against the Lord, who had redeemed them and brought them into their land and had superabundantly blessed them. Jeremiah was to warn them of the impending judgment about to fall upon them and their cities and their land if they did not turn back to the Lord and repent. Just as God had brought that kind of a judgment on their sister to the north, Israel, by bringing the Assyrian nation against them and utterly decimating and destroying them, so he was about to do to Judah and Jerusalem and the people of the land there. Jeremiah saw the Babylonian hordes come. He saw them slaughter the people of Judah and Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. They burned the temple and the city and took all who remained alive except for the extremely poor back to the land of Babylon. And when Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentation, this letter, we find him walking now in the midst of the smoking ruins of Jerusalem. It's in this setting and at this time that his heart cries out to God, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed Never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Well, I've summarized Jeremiah's words in Lamentation 3 19 through 26 like this. Verses 19 and 20, he's saying, I remember. Oh God, please remember. Lord, you have deeply impressed upon me through my affliction, my wandering, my wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. I cry out to you to look upon my soul and my situation and remember me as well. Now, God, please remember me in this horrible situation and crisis. Verses 21 through 23, he says, Because your faithfulness, your loving kindness... Your compassion never cease or fail. Therefore, I still have hope. Great words, aren't they? 
walking in the middle of the smoking ashes of Jerusalem. People have been slaughtered. Everything's in ruin. Those that survived were taken into captivity. And yet still, I have hope. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in Him, or I hope in Him. And 25 and 26, he says, I will wait. I will wait in silence and seek the Lord who will provide my salvation. You know, it reminds me of David's words in Psalm 41 through 3. There he said, I waited patiently or intently for the Lord And he inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And he has set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And then he says he's put a new song in my mouth. Here he was in that miry clay, that pit. He couldn't get out. God lifted him up out of that finally as he waited intently for him. And he's put a new song in my mouth. Many will see it. He didn't even say here because he maybe was a lousy singer. I think David was probably a good singer. But he said, many will see it and fear and trust in the Lord. Seeing the context out of which Jeremiah spoke those words, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We will now look at this beloved hymn, loved by young and old alike, that bears that name, Great is thy faithfulness. We're going to begin with verse 1. Let me read verse 1 to you. And then I want to make some comments and you'll have your outline that you can fill in there on verse 1. Great is thy faithfulness. By the way, it's hard to read it and not sing it, okay? (laughs) Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. In your outline, we begin with this first verse. I've described it this way. God's unchangeable nature testifies to his faithfulness. God's unchangeable nature testifies to his faithfulness. And where do we begin in that song? This God who does not change is my Father. Oh God, my Father. Isn't that something? This God, who does not change, is my Father. Great is thy faithfulness, oh God, my Father. You know, many, many people in the world acknowledge the existence of God. Multitudes even pray. To God, I'm talking about even unsaved people. They pray to God. We also know that multitudes repeatedly take the name of God in vain as a swear word. But the person who has truly put their faith in Jesus Christ, that Christian, not only acknowledges the existence of God, that person also knows that this one true God is his or her heavenly Father. These are not just words. A truly wonderful relationship between God and you has been formed. He is your father and you are his son, or I might add here, daughter for you ladies. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. That's Aramaic for daddy. And then the Greek, pater, father. It's a Precious, real, living, vital relationship. John twenty seventeen. we're about to celebrate Easter here. Jesus said when he came out of that tomb to Mary Magdalene, I ascend to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Number two. This God who does not change is my Father. Number two, because God does not change, His compassions never fail. They never fail. 
There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. Thomas Chisholm, who wrote those words, had James 1.17 in mind when he did that. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. As the sun moves across the sky, it casts a shadow upon the earth. But there is no shadow of turning with God because His nature is unchangeable. And unlike all the made-up gods that man has created, the one true God reveals Himself as being a compassionate God. This is what is a big, huge difference between Christianity and the God of Christianity and all the other gods that man makes and and devises in his his, uh, uh, mind here, that God is a compassionate. You You think about Allah and what do you find about Him? He is not a compassionate God at all. What does that tell you? He is not the same God that you and I worship who is your my heavenly Father. He is a different God. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Is this not a new morning? Even with daylight savings time? And His compassions did not fail today. And you know what, dear ones? They will not fail tomorrow. No matter what you find yourself going through, they will not fail. Great is thy faithfulness. I love these words written years ago by Matthew Henry on this text. He wrote, Speaking of God, he does not willingly grieve the children of men, much less his own children. Listen to this. However it be, yet God is good to them. And they may by faith see love in his heart, even when they see frowns in his face and a rod in his hands. Isn't that an amazing quote? Listen again. And they may by faith see love in his heart, even when they see frowns in his face and a rod in his hands. Over and over again in the Psalms, God declares himself to be a compassionate God. That's why I love to read the Psalms. I go one a day, after I hit 150, I go right back and start all over again. I'll get through, you know, a couple times there in, in one year's time, uh, almost through all of it there. But over and over, you run across that word compassion, compassionate, loving kindnesses and mercy. Over and over, you run across those words. That is our God, my heavenly Father. Isn't that great? Where's my amens to that, even though you got up early? And so it is with you as well. How many times in the Gospels did it say Jesus saw the multitudes and had compassion on them? How many times did he meet individuals, and usually they were beat down, probably they had physical maladies, and it says he looked with compassion on them and reached out and met their needs? This is our God. This is the one who saved you and me. Compassions. Even when it comes to our deliberately sinning against God, and we all do that, we find Him to be merciful and compassionate. Do we not? David wrote that after his terrible falling into terrible sin. He said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And you know what? God does, doesn't He? He does. And we go right back and fall into sin again, and still, out of great compassion, He blots out our sin. Number three in your outline about God's unchangeable nature testifies to his faithfulness. As God has been, he always will be. As God has been, he always will be. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be, he wrote. People can tell you things about themselves. They can promise you certain things as well. But you know what? Go back and look at their history. What are they really like? What does their history tell you about them? They have a history that reveals who they really are and whether or not they will do what they say. 
You can find their integrity written back in their history in most cases. God, too, has a history. And as He has been, He always will be. We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And there, when Adam and Eve fell, we see God moving in compassion and mercy. Meeting their needs. You move a little further off of that and you get to that time of the worldwide flood in Genesis chapter 6. I mean, now think about it. He created us. And they should have learned from Adam and Eve's fall and from Cain and Abel, but they didn't. And now you have this huge sea of people. We don't know how many were existed, but millions, I'm sure. And, and they all turned away from God except for Noah and his three, his three sons and uh, their wives. And what do we see? God showing compassion. He says, my, my spirit will not always strive with man, but I'll give him 120 years. I'll do more than that. I'll even warn him, Noah, you've got the job. You have two jobs. Build an ark. Big ark, by the way, Noah. Boy, I'd hate to have been one of his sons. They never ran out of work. Build this huge ark. And secondly, you preach to these people and warn them. I'm a compassionate God, but it's going to run out. And then the judgment will come. We see it there. You can move through your Bible and you find God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, and they're down there in the land of Egypt, terribly under oppression and torment, and even being murdered as well, worked to death and so forth. And God comes out of compassion, and we see him delivering them. And then he takes them into the land of of Canaan there, and there, what they do, they turn against him. And that's where we are in this book of Jeremiah. Lamentations. They turn against him, and God has to judge them. He warns them. And by the way, this scene, we're going to talk about the prophets and their writings. I hope you'll come back at six for that. But he warns them over and over and over again because he's a compassionate God, a merciful God. He does not want to bring his judgment upon them as he doesn't want to bring it upon you and me. And he warns them, but finally it has to come because they will not repent. And yet what compassion, and finally you get to when Jesus came, and there you see God's compassion, his loving kindness, and his mercy on that cross in his son. Amazing compassion. So he has a history we look at, and say, yes, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Amazing. Well, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Thou changest not, thy compassions fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. So verse 1, God's unchangeable nature testifies to his faithfulness. That brings us then to the second verse of that great hymn of the faith. Let me read it for you. Summer and winter, and springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. We begin, first of all, in your outline with number one, nature consistently gives testimony, doesn't it? Nature consistently gives testimony. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, all nature gives manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Nature. What a testimony to God's faithfulness. I mean, even in this world that's under the curse because of Adam's sin, still, is it not a glorious creation? Did you not look to the west and see the Olympic mountains snow-covered? All this sunshine? Or you can look to the east, or you can look south, Mount Rainier, or to the north, Mount Baker. I mean, what a glorious creation to behold. And who doesn't enjoy a beautiful sunset? You don't get to see that too often in the Northwest. But when you do, you really enjoy it, right? (laughs) Who does not enjoy uh, the uh, flowers that are in bloom now? And the variety and all the colors. And this is God's creation, nature. And on a clear night, you see the heavens filled with the stars. And and you just, it it just, it's it's awesome, isn't it? And then who does not enjoy a good meal? I mean, a ribeye steak, a pound for you guys, done exactly with the seasoning, the way you like it done. And then there's that, you went on a cruise, he's probably had one every night. 
And that, that nice big baker, that baked potato, and you split that hot thing open, and you put your butter on that. Now, this is what's wrong with me while I'm gaining weight. You put your butter on that, and then your sour cream, and then your salt. Oh. Oh, and, and bacon and chives as well. And then there's a great tossed salad, or maybe you like the other kind of salad. But I mean, Are you getting hungry? But you, you know what? You know what? That's God's creation. All of that is provided by God. And we, every day we see that, he said, it, it is a witness to my faithfulness to you. Summer and winter, he says, and springtime and harvest, they come every time of the year except the back east. Okay. We've had an amazing spring, winter and spring coming on. I'll tell you what. And, and why did they do so? Here's why. Listen to God's promise to Noah in Genesis 8, 21, 22. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. That's after the worldwide flood and they came out of that ark. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then he makes this promise. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, And summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Why? Because he's a faithful God. And nature testifies to his faithfulness. Not just nature, but number two, the heavens. The heavens consistently give testimony as well. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Such glory, such glory, such order and design. In fact, God testifies in Romans chapter 1, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. He says, look at creation, look at the heavens. So that they are without excuse. I mean, and by the way, we have the ability scientifically to discover things, to analyze things. Maybe we don't so much out in space, although we're doing that a little bit more as well. But we see what? Order and design. And they come up with there has to be some intelligent being. Yeah, we call him God because he is God. And not only that, we know him and he reveals himself in the pages of Scripture. Yes, great is thy faithfulness, the heavens consistently give testimony. In Psalm 19, David tells us that God revealed himself to all mankind through two mediums. Number one, creation. Number two, his written word. Creation and his written word. Listen to what David writes about his creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, because nature doesn't speak like we do. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. And then he says, let me describe one. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. That's a matrimonial tent, by the way which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. What descriptive language. He's just gotten married, had his first night with his bride, and now he's rejoicing coming out of that tent. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising as from one end of the heavens, and it's circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And you know what man does? He decides, well, I will worship then the sun. Or something stupid other than worshiping the one true God who created all of it. So the heavens consistently give testimony. God's creation testifies to his faithfulness. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. And then we come to the third verse. What theology in that third verse? Remember it? You sang it, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide. 
strength for today, and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. In this third verse, I've described it this way in your outline. God's act of redemption and reconciliation testify to his faithfulness. God's act of redemption and reconciliation testify to his faithfulness. We begin with that first one, his pardon for my sin. His pardon for my sin. Pardon for sin. Sin, guilt, judgment, all three not only weigh down the soul, they bring with them devastating temporal and eternal consequences. We know God's word is true when it declares, the soul that sins, it shall die. We all know that. Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. And we see it all around us, and we're on our journey as well. Proverbs 13, verse 15 says, The way of the transgressor is hard. Would you not say amen to that? It is hard. I don't care how successful they are, how wonderful their marriage is, how many kids they have that are doing what they ought to do, how much money and wealth they have, how much good health they have, though still they will say the way of the transgressor is hard. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, God says this about the sinner. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And what is the sinner's life like? What effect does his sin have on him? Here's how God answers. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse in mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Well, I lived ten years on the coast, and I know what that means. We lived a few blocks away from the ocean, and man, you could hear it when it was really riled up and roaring. And you go down there and you can see the surf was all, all this filth and so forth that it uh, stirred and churned up. And that's what he says is what's going on in the heart of the one who is not saved. The wicked, by the way, is the one who's not saved. Why is he wicked? Because he's, first of all, born in sin. And secondly, he lives out his sin. And in that, he also rejects and renounces God and his only provision for that sin and for him. David described his salvation, calling it, the joy of salvation. Isn't that good? I like that one. The joy of salvation. One of the greatest experiences that comes over the person who gets saved is God's promise that he writes to them in his word that there's absolutely no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Isn't that wonderful? Romans 8, one, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible to me. There is therefore now, right now, Bill, no condemnation because you have put your faith in my son, Jesus Christ. All condemnation for my sin is forever gone, forever removed. But how can God forgive and pardon my sin, your sin, and remain perfect and absolutely just and righteous in doing this? He can't just ignore and overlook our sin. His justice demands payment be made in full. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, it tells us that God is both, listen to this, He is both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in His Son and what His Son did on that cross for them. For He is a perfect one who went there and bore all your and my sin. All of them. All of them. And then God poured out his wrath because he must now bear our penalty for our sin as well. And then God says, when you put your faith in him, you are pardoned. You are forgiven. You are now reconciled back to me as one of my children. What an incredible gift from God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, our speaker during the missions conference, uses the number of times, he that is God made him, his son Christ, who knew no sin, 
What did He make Him? To be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You know what? I'm clothed with His righteousness. Are you? You're not saved if you're not. The moment you put your faith in Him, He what? He comes into your life. The Holy Spirit comes into your life. He's the third person of the Trinity. He comes into your life and you are clothed with the righteousness of God. And you're never unclothed, dear one. God always sees you in His Son. Always, always He sees you in His Son. So He pardons pardon for His pardon for my sin. Number two, His peace that endures. His peace that endures. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. What words? Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuge in mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Romans 5, 1, though, says, Therefore, Therefore, having been justified by faith, what? Can you finish it? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who provides that peace. What an amazing verse. Therefore, having been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's that mean? It means you are reconciled back to God before you were alienated. His wrath was over hanging over your head. If you're still unsaved, that's your condition now. God's wrath. You may not know it. You may not believe it. You may not accept it, acknowledge it, but His wrath is hanging over your head right now. A sea of people out there, that's their condition. But life is so good. Things are going so great, they don't care. They will take their chances because they will create God as they want Him to be, believing He has to allow them into heaven if there is an afterlife and a heaven. And they don't pay attention to what God says. What have I said to you? What have I shown you and declared to you? My wrath hangs over your head. And your only hope of getting out from that is what? Is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, what He did on the cross. That's the only way. And what happens? He floods you, your life, your being with peace. Many, many years ago, the first church I had full time in Ames, Iowa, the deacon and I went out soul winning and we were knocking on this door and this lady happened to be there with her little son who was really wild. Wow. I said, Don, your job is to handle the kid. He had one of those bouncy balls. Boing, boing, boing. And uh, ADD was in operation there. So Don was wore out with him, and I was trying to talk to her about the Lord. Lived fairly close to the church. And I said, you know, if you, if you decide this is for you, if you decide you want to ask Jesus to forgive your sins, and you're going to trust what he did on the cross for you, I said, I'm not putting any pressure on you all, but give me a call tomorrow. Let me know what you decide. So the next morning, more toward evening, she called. I said, what happened? She says, laying in bed reading my Bible, I began talking to the Lord about what you said. And she says, such an incredible peace just came over me. I just fell asleep. Just incredible peace. Wow. What does he say? A peace that endures. The Bible speaks of peace with God. That's what happens when you get saved. It never goes away. You have peace with God. But there's also the peace of God. And every believer goes through that in and out, in and out. How can you get the peace of God? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 explains how the believer in Christ can experience that peace. He says, be anxious for nothing. Now, nobody here has anxiety in your life, right? Nobody. He says, commands, stop being anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God until you can truly say unto your heart, Lord, I'm thankful for this situation. I don't like it. It's painful. It's terrible. But I thank you because I know you're in control. When you can finally get to that, what happens? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. By the way, did you know that that is an Old Testament teaching as well? Write it down, Isaiah 26.3. Isaiah 26.3 The steadfast of mind thou will keep in perfect peace. Perfect peace because he trusts in thee. But then not only that, 
God's act of redemption and reconciliation testify to his faithfulness, his pardon for my sin, his peace that endures. But number three, his very presence. And that's something. His very presence, thine own presence to cheer and to guide. What a difference Christianity is. The rest is totally bankrupt, but Christianity gives you very God himself. His very presence goes with you. Asaph wrote, gave testimony, and he was troubled by the way things were going on on in Psalm 73. He writes about it. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. What a precious insight that God gives to you and me from Asaph. You've taken hold, you're continually with me. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Thine own presence to cheer and to guide. The Lord promised those who belong to him, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Speaking of the very presence of the Lord, Paul wrote and said, I command you, what? Rejoice where? In the Lord. Always. And then he said, again I say, rejoice. Joy is to be found in the presence of the Lord in your life. This is surely one of the greatest gifts that God gives to those who place their faith in His Son. He gives you God, the Holy Spirit, who comes and permanently indwells you. In fact, the Bible says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't even belong to Him. And then number four, in this act of redemption and reconciliation that shows God's faithfulness, number four, His strength for today. I don't know what you're going through. I know I've been by the the side of many a saint who's gone through things that are just incomprehensible. And yet I know that God's presence is there. I know that His strength is there because God is faithful. In Hebrews 4, 14-16, the Lord not only welcomes us to come to His throne, He greatly encourages us to do so. And He's talking about people who are going to, they've hit the bottom. They have major problems they're having to deal with and don't know how to handle. Therefore, he says, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't fall into sin and fall away. Hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why so? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He offers us strength for today. When Paul wrote the letter of the Ephesians, he spoke a lot about God's provision of this strength for you and me. Chapter 1, for example, he prays that you and I would come to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's in accordance with his resurrection of his son from the dead. His exaltation of his son to the highest place of authority and power in the heavenly places. He goes on, chapter 3 of Ephesians, he prays again for you and me. And he says, he prays that he, that is the Father, would grant you, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now Christ's already in the heart of the believer, but he's talking about he is there to take control and you allow him to do that. And then he adds to that prayer, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works within us. You're not surprised then when you get to the end of that letter of Ephesians. Here's what he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. His strength for today, great is thy faithfulness. So Thomas Chisholm pins those words his song. Pardon for sin, a peace that endureth, thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide, and then adds those encouraging words, strength for today. But look at the last part. Verse number five. His bright hope for tomorrow. Isn't that good? No matter what I'm going through, you're going through, or will. His 
bright hope for tomorrow. Was that not Jeremiah's heart response when he walked in the midst of the smoky, devastated ruins of Jerusalem? This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. This I call recall to mind, your faithfulness, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Someone has said concerning the Christian's hope that our future is as bright as the promises of God. And I like that. Your future, my future, and the Lord Jesus Christ are as bright as the promises of God. And that's also what the Bible declares. Write these verses down. Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4. You know, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. But he didn't stop there. You go on down to verse 13. Paul writes, Now may the God of hope, whoa, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abide bound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that's a great prayer. That's a great prayer for you and for me. Let me read it again. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's when you ought to commit to memory. You and I ought to commit that to memory. But what kind of hope is God talking about? Well, savor with me Romans 5 verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We already read that. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. What? We exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And let me tell you this, he says, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through its Holy Spirit. That's an assured hope. That's a guarantee from God, who is always, always faithful. And number six... Boy, this guy Chisholm really captured it all. His 10,000 blessings. His 10,000 blessings. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We often say to one another, bless the Lord, right? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you. By the way, and the Lord has blessed us. He has blessed us according to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 with, listen to what it says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Keep that in mind. God says, I've already blessed you. I blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even as I chose you before the foundation of the world to be mine. When God redeemed you and reconciled you back to himself, pardoning all your sin and making you you his son or his daughter, he blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And along with the songwriter, great joy and praise fills your heart and my heart as we sing blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. So, God's unchangeable Nature testifies to his faithfulness, verse 1. God's creation testifies to his faithfulness, verse 2. And God's act of redemption and reconciliation testify to his faithfulness. He saved you, reconciling you back to himself and what fellowship we have. Yes, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed Thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. In a moment, we're going to partake of these elements. Every believer is asked by the Lord to do that. He wants your fellowship. 
So the only requirements he puts on this, he says, I want you to be saved, to put your faith in my son, trusting him for your salvation. And secondly, I want you to walk in fellowship with me. So, you know, if you know you're out of fellowship, he says, now's the time to get right. I, I'm, I'm in your presence. I want your fellowship. I treasure your fellowship. You're precious to me. I don't care what you've done. I want your fellowship. Let me forgive you and cleanse you and bless you. But before we do that, we need to think again on those words of great is thy faithfulness. You're not going to sing it. Not today, not right now. But there's a man that's going to sing it. He sings it very slowly, and it gives you time and me time just to reflect on those words we just went through in this message. I want you to listen as Whitley Phipps sings, Great is thy faithfulness. Listen and think and meditate on the words and God's faithfulness to you and me.
driving around in my pickup and I was listening to that song over and over again it was his singing that that made me, moved on my heart I want to preach on great is thy faithfulness <laughs> 